So what makes us human then is, I think, nothing magical, nothing. I don't, I don't think it's a special cell type. It's a special brain region. It's a special type of connectivity or topological feature. It's the sudden explosion of possibilities that occurred when our brain topology became capable of using our bodies and feeding itself information in new ways. So there's a network there, a larger network. Uh, that's you know above and beyond what we can measure in individual brains, but I think that's um, that's the way I think about it. I was working on some of this stuff you know 20, 25 years ago, and I, believe me, nobody had any interest in it. I gave a talk on small world networks in my first talk on the subject in 1999, and exactly three people showed up. Wow. This is Brain Inspired. What pops into your head when I say network? Do you think of an artificial neural network like a deep learning model? Or do you think of real neurons and their connections and brains? Maybe the cities in your country connected by roads? Maybe an ant colony? If you're Olaf Sporns, all these things pop into your head because everything is a network. Olaf has been studying networks for many years now, and specifically networks of the brain, which happens to be the title of the book he wrote uh, about a decade ago, Networks of the Brain. Olaf and his colleagues are responsible for giving us the word connectome, which is the wiring diagram of the brain at various spatial scales. That's a structural network, the connectome, but there are networks made of the activity patterns of our neurons as well, functional connectivity, and all the network dynamics in between. And in the past 10 years or so, the study of brains using network science has taken on the name network neuroscience, and that's what we discuss today. Uh, We talk about where network neuroscience came from, where it is now, and where it's headed, and how Olaf thinks of brain networks relative to artificial neural networks, like the current deep learning models. So hopefully this conversation serves as an introduction for you to learn more, which you can do through the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 76. Speaking of learning more, uh, I was on a run yesterday. I was about halfway up the mountain, gasping for air, and in my oxygen-deprived state, I realized something I should have been doing all along in this podcast, and I will start doing. So before I air an episode, uh, to those of you who would like it, I'll send an email with a relevant paper or paper abstract or a link to a video, um, something like that, that will serve as a primer for the upcoming podcast episode. So if you use this podcast as a source of education, or you just want to get more out of it, I know it can get sort of deep and technical sometimes, hopefully you'll get this email from me, you can digest uh, whatever I send in the email, and then let your subconscious do its thing before you listen to the episode. So I put a sign-up box right on the homepage at braininspired.co, where if you sign up there, uh, you will receive these emails about upcoming episodes. I'll also do this on Patreon, of course, where sometimes before I even record an episode, I ask my Patreon supporters if they have specific questions for the guest that I am soon to speak with. Okay, uh, Olaf was a pleasure to speak with, 
And it's exciting to think of where network neuroscience is headed in the near future. Um, and it's good to know that people like Olaf are working on it. Thanks, as always, for listening, and enjoy. Olaf, you just informed me that you are new again just today to your now useless office. How, how does it feel to be back in your office? Well, it's, it's a little surreal. The, the department building is completely deserted, and uh, we're still shut down. We're going to open up uh, next week, presumably, with some research activity. But um, for the moment, everything is uh, completely empty. I haven't been back here uh, very much at all, maybe twice or so over the, over the last two months. And uh, it's odd to be back in your office uh, seeing it after so many days. Do you, do you miss it, though? Does it feel like coming home, in a sense? I do miss it. Uh, one thing I miss is that I, uh, you know, I, the, the work-life balance is a little uh, uh, out of shape. Uh, I used to use my office a lot for work and then go home and, and not do a lot of work. <laughs> now I'm working from home, so now it's all mixed up. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the new normal. Um, and also I miss my books and my, my papers that are stacked up in my office. I don't have any access to those. <laughs> and, uh, I've lost that. So, yeah. you know. But we're managing. Well, I'm glad I could uh, draw you back into your office for an hour or so here. So, um, well, welcome to the show. I want to I say thanks for coming on, but also thank you for uh, running a journal that's completely open access, Network Neuroscience Journal. So thanks. Yes, uh, I started that journal uh, with with many colleagues in the field in, in 2016, and I I was an, uh, an early adopter of open access, of the open access model with PLOS going back, you know, almost 15 years now. And I strongly believe in, in open, in the open access model for, for publication and, and sharing articles for free, uh, making them immediately available to everyone. That's how, what we do. We've done this from, from, from day one. And uh, it's a model that apparently is being adopted more and more. So how's the journal going? I just to. We're doing we're doing great. Uh, we have a steady flow of submissions. We uh, have in an area that I think we're going to talk about more later today in this in this in this conversation. Network neuroscience, it's a it's a burgeoning, uh, rapidly growing subfield of of both neuroscience and network science, and um, we get really great submissions. Uh, and uh, we have an enthusiastic board of editors and, and our reviewers are, are, are doing a great job too. So we're, we're doing well and, and I'm hoping to expand uh, the journal further in coming years and, and mm. I'm really enjoying working, working on it. That's great. I mean, just reading the literature, you said it's burgeoning. It feels like it has burgeoned, but I'll, I'll ask you about that in a little bit here. Okay, so uh, network neuroscience. So uh, I understand that the lofty goal of this subdiscipline, network neuroscience, is to use complexity and network science to bridge all of the levels in neuroscience. So that's from the molecular networks uh, within individual neurons even, uh, up all the way to social networks between individual people and, you know, as a collective. Today, we're probably, I think, going to focus mostly on the level of neurons and the structures that they form, the, you know, the connectome, and the dynamics and functional activity that they give rise to. So uh, I guess I'll just start by asking you how network neuroscience conceptualizes brain function. 
Good question. Uh, and uh, I, I've, I've come across people who've said to me, well, networks have been around for a long time, and so there's nothing new about it. However, there is, um, because while the, the term network has been used in neuroscience uh, literature for, for quite some time, really, um, there's a technical way in which we use the term in our little uh, sub-area, and that is a network is a a complex system that's been divided up into nodes and edges, uh, um, elements and interconnections, and we represent it as a graph. That is a very technical meaning of the term network, and that approach has not does not have a long history yet. I remember starting doing this with uh, some of my, my uh, colleagues back in the 90s when there was really no interest in this at all. And now it's it's grown tremendously, in part because network science has grown. Network science is a discipline that deals with networks in all contexts, from epidemiology. We're living in a network science <laughs> world right now because some of my my friends in the field are modeling uh, the spread of COVID, and 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 that's a network science application. But also uh, in social systems and technological systems, the internet, of course, then social networks. Uh, and of course, biology, networks of proteins, networks of cells, and the brain is, a, is an example par excellence. And so this is a tech, really a technically founded, technically precise uh, undertaking of understanding a system like the brain from a perspective that um, uh, is based on networks as collections of nodes and interactions. The nodes can be neurons, they can be brain regions, depending on the recording methodology or the scale we adopt. And the interactions can be synaptic connections, physical connections, pathways, or functional interactions, dependencies, statistical uh, dependencies, etc., that we talk about in functional connectivity. So it, it, that that sort of nexus of you know network science on one side and neuroscience on the other, it's fairly fresh, and it has uh, taken off uh, like a rocket ship. Really, it's, it's amazing to see for me because I, you know. Uh, like I mentioned, I was working on some of this stuff, you know, 20, 25 years ago, and I, believe me, nobody had any interest <laughs> in it. I gave a talk on small world networks in my first talk on the subject in 1999, and exactly three people showed up. Wow. Yeah, the guy who, in, who invited me to give the talk and his two graduate students, and that was it. You need a, you need a world to have a small world network, and that wasn't yeah. quite a world. No, and you know, if if, if I had had any uh, sense of uh, uh, risk uh, aversion, I would have given up on it, right? I would have uh, sort of said, "Well, that's not going to work," because I had just really no interest. But I, I <clears throat> we prevailed, and and then a few years after that, the idea of the connectome came about, and uh, you know, mapping a nervous system in its entirety and at some level of scale with all connections and all elements. And uh, that then became the starting point uh, 15 years ago for what where we are now, which is really a big field. I mean, I, I you know I want to ask you about 100 questions right now. One, first of all, I'm, I'm going to have David Krakauer on the show soon, who's the president of the Santa Fe Institute for Complexity, and I know he's been very steeped in the COVID uh, 19 modeling of it in you know from the network and complexity side. So. You know that everybody's turned to, to that's that's the most famous network right now, I suppose. 
It sure is. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm teaching a course on graduate course on networks. I just taught it in the spring. And when I, you know, on, in my first class, that's one of the applications that I put on my, uh, on, you know, on the screen and say, here, this is a network. It has a virus spreading. And they, you know, there were, we've had a few of these outbreaks now with Ebola and with uh, H1N1 about 10 years ago. And some of my colleagues, uh, good friends in the field, they are modeling that stuff, um, literally trying to forecast in, in, in real time. It's very data-driven. It's very uh, very much of an application of network science. And I wish we had the kind of predictive, you know, data-driven modeling in neuroscience. You know, uh, uh, we, we don't quite yet have the data intake. We don't quite yet have the, the viable computational framework to use. To may really make sort of predictive models of brain function, that would be fantastic to have, and um, maybe we'll get there one day. Yeah. Well, just before we move on again, I usually save this kind of question for toward the end of the show. But since you brought up the three people showing up to your 1999 talk, do you think that that's an important character trait to just keep going in in the face of these? <laughs> so, I don't know was that if that's an obstacle, but it is a uh, a bad sign. What would you call that experience? Yeah, I I I, I sometimes talk to, I often talk to uh, you know early career scientists, grad students, postdocs about what should what should they do, specialize in, how should they shape their careers, and I'm a bad example because <laughs> I really bet on things that um, didn't really have a high probability of success, even computational neuroscience, which is now a uh, an, an ingredient of, of of all neuroscience almost uh, was a was a very small subfield back in sort of 1990 when I got my PhD. When I got my PhD, there was no fMRI. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so you know nothing in my, nothing that I learned during my PhD uh, uh, classes, courses, projects, whatever, pre really prepared me directly for many of the technical things that I'm dealing with today. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, I, I kind of persisted in part because I had a few good friends in the field who were equally persistent and who gave me the kind of social support that I needed. You know, Randy McIntosh, Julia Tononi, Carl Friston, uh, those, those guys, uh, helped me uh, kind of, you know, keeping, keeping pushing on in that direction. And, uh, eventually we made, uh, we made it to the point where it, it took off and became a, um, uh, an activity that was, that is now widely adopted. But that's sort of a principle that, uh, low probability, high, high risk, high reward, I, you know, that seems to be a recipe for mostly failure and some success. And I don't know how you get to the success part of it. Well, I mean, I, I had, I, I was working on small world connectivity patterns in the nineties and complexity, but I also had other lines of research that I was pushing mm -hmm. simultaneously that, that, um, were not, maybe not quite as fringy as that or, or as arcane and, and obscure. Uh, I was working with robots for a while, uh, trying to understand how, um, the brain is embedded in its environment, how the interactions, sort of the dynamic interplay mm -hmm. between behavior, movement in the real world, sensory sampling, and then brain activity, how that kind of plays out. And, and, and robotics was a test bed for that. So I actually had a robot lab for a while and I published in that, in that, in that field and went to meetings, uh, uh, at the time quite a bit in an area that's called embodied cognition. Uh, it, it was not totally unconnected from my network and complex systems leanings, of course, because there is still that element of connectedness, right? 
the brain as connected to the world and to the environment and being an active participant in that interplay, not just a passive sort of, you know, intake of information processor kind of thing, but really shaping the information itself. That was an important lesson that I learned when I was working in that field. And I pursued that in parallel. Uh, also, when I moved here to Indiana University for a few years, I had a robot lab here. And then in 2006, 2007, 2008, connectivity suddenly took off and it, mm. and it sort of consumed con- consumed my research program entirely. So that's all I'm, I'm doing now. The robots are gathering dust. So work all the time. Keep your fingers dipped in a few different buckets along the way. Know when to stop and know when to grab onto the reins and, and, <laughs> and let it ride, huh? And uh, and also reach out to others. Uh, one of the most important pieces of career advice I like to give sometimes jokingly is uh, maximize your betweenness centrality. In other <laughs> words, think think of yourself in your social in your social network as a scientist, as someone who builds bridges. Okay, someone who is in between fields, who makes the connection, let's say, between robotics and neuroscience, or between neuroscience and network science, or complexity. Someone who is conversant on both sides, someone who can bring to the table expertise uh, that otherwise isn't available and makes that, that connection. It's often those connections that ultimately grow into the next big field or activity that uh, blossoms from that. And you have to have a certain amount of uh, self-confidence, maybe, uh, and, and, and persistence. And even though I never really reflected on it very much uh, at the time, um, it, it turned out that that I made some some choices that that apparently have paid off. Well, um, sorry, I've taken us so far off course already. But you know, these days I know that it's networks all the way down for you. You you think in yeah. terms of networks with virtually everything, like you were just saying. Uh, and you know, so that was in 1999. You gave that three person, <laughs> three attendees talk. And then 10 years later, you 10, 11 years later, you published uh, Networks of the Brain, which is sort of, you know, which was the, I don't know, the first book about brain networks, wasn't it? In a sense, yes. I mean, there's always, always uh, well, yeah. uh, examples that, that reach back further. And I had, uh, you know, I, I have a, got a lot of respect for many senior colleagues in my field who have been thinking along similar lines. I've mentioned a few names already. And. So I was building on that partially, but uh, I, yeah, I, I, I wrote that book. I don't know how I did it. I wrote it um, in ten or eleven months uh, while I was doing administrative work. The lab never stopped. I was traveling. I remember I, I somehow managed, but I think in part because I had that plan in my head for a long time of writing that book and uh, and making that connection between complexity science, uh, networks, and a brain function. And I wanted to get some of the key uh, ideas that have, you know, animated my own work until now. I wanted to get them across. And so I was very happy to, it was a great exercise to write, uh, allowed me to be a scholar for a while uh, um, uh, and, and, and work uh, on something actually entirely on myself. And I, I'm so pleased with the fact that so many people have read it. And uh, even today, and it's now a decade since it came out, I, I still come across some people now and then in places that I visit that, um, you know, pull out their book and say it was really made a difference to me to, to read this and really got me started in my own way. And that's, a, that's sort of the best reward you can have. You know, somebody actually uh, reads it and, and takes it takes it to the next level. It really happens with, with papers, right? Um, yeah. uh, pa- papers, are, papers are 
have a shorter lifetime in many, many, many cases. This, this book is now a decade old and it's still apparently doing quite well. Well, I was going to say, I, I have a bit of regret actually, because I remember um, when the Small World Network stuff was just really taking off and even in the popular press. And, and I remember when your book came out uh, and I thought, oh, I should, oh, I should really read that because it seems like this network stuff is, is taking off. And then I didn't, but I recently did. And first of all, it's extremely well written. It's just a very easy read and uh, it gives, you know, a great overview of the field. And I know that it, you know, the network neuroscience has come a long way since then, but I still think it's a wonderful introduction to the topic. And I don't know if a second version is coming out and if it's going to be 10 times as thick or what. But what I want to ask is, you know, since then, you know, we've come a long way. So so what is the broad current picture in network neuroscience? Well, first to your, your question about is there a new book coming? I have plans to, to do something like <laughs> that again, but okay. it keeps getting away from me. So let's hope I, I'll find a break and, uh, and, and, and do it. And I think uh, uh, to your point about it's, network neuroscience has come a long way. Honestly, that book, um, uh, you know, the references kind of stop in 2009, 2010, yeah. uh, and there has been so much more. Yeah. Uh, and our perspective has changed a lot, too. So you mentioned small worldness, for instance. It was, in many ways, a concept that, that got network science started uh, and, rest- and then restarted in the 90s uh, with that famous uh, watson Storgatz paper came out of Nature. But... Today, small world is a totally uh, neglected topic as it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, in fact, now we kind of realize that many, so many networks are. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. So in some ways, it's, it's lost interest. People have lost interest in it. That's no longer the, the core of the field at all. We are now in, in, in a very different world. And so to your second question, where, where has it gone? Right. We, one, two things have happened that, that have driven, I think, the expansion of, uh, of network neuroscience. One is that uh, uh, we have a lot more technology available to us today than we had even 10 years ago in terms of recording brain activity, uh, neuronal activity, and, and whole brain activity, and take in that data and then, um, uh, and then do data science on it, essentially, do time series analysis, do um, dimension reduction techniques, uh, network science uh, tools, etc., kind of dig structure and patterns out of those data. Uh, one of the big uh, ways that, you know, one, one of the big reasons why network neuroscience took a while to take off was because we had no data. Fifteen years ago, uh, 2005, you know, when we wrote yeah. that Connectome paper, which, which really was a manifesto that said we need that type of data and information to make sense of the brain, but we didn't have any. And so now we are swimming in data. So that's driving. So there's, there's a demand for tools and techniques to really um, make sense of the data. The data is not in itself is great to have, but you really want understanding of what the system is doing. For that, you do need, in part, network science methodology because the brain is fundamentally a network. It is elements and interactions. And that's, dri- that's been driving, I think, the expansion of network neuroscience methodology into electrophysiological recordings, EEG, MEG, certainly fMRI and, and diffusion imaging in, in whole human brains, but also model organisms, zebra fish, uh, mouse, rat, uh, C. elegans, you know, network uh, language terminology 
tools, techniques are really uh, uh, pervasive almost in, in, in those types of investigations. And it's driven in part by the data. This is an interesting conundrum, I think, because uh, we run up against it all the time. You know, there's this cycle, you know, you get more data and then you develop more theoretical tools to analyze the data. Um, but you, And you have something like network science where in theory <laughs> you have the theoretical tools and you're waiting for the data. But then the data comes and you realize, oh my gosh, it's we don't have the theoretical tools. It's it's interesting that we cannot uh imagine what would we do if we had all the data. And yeah. and I think this is just going to continue moving forward, but you know, eventually we're going to have the activities of every single neuron, every single type of neuron, you know, and it's going to go into a database. We should in theory be able to think what would we do with that data? We, but we can't do that. And I, it's a it's an interesting barrier I, I I find. There's multiple questions that I that I want to unpack a little bit. So your first point, uh, just to make sure uh, uh, I'm not overstating, um, the tools that we currently have, even from network science, even some of the most advanced things, are not always perfect for what we want to do in neuroscience. And one of the ambiguities of network science is because there is a general framework coming more from physics and statistical um, investigations of networks. But there's also that domain-specific knowledge, right? It's data that comes from the brain, and that data is uh, the origin of the data. We have to take that into account when we analyze the data and model the data. We can't just blind ourselves to it's just a network. Right? That's, not, that's not quite the way I see it. So the demand for brain-specific, brain-appropriate, if you wish, tools and methodologies is still there. Um, there are many questions that we cannot answer or even address with network science tools yet. Uh, and, and so that's an ongoing process. Secondly, that's a good question. What would, what would we do? What will we do when one day we have a, let's say, a full account of all neurons, uh, what I call all neurons all the time? Okay. Ooh. <laughs> the, the structure and activity, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what would we do? You know, just imagine, let's say humans. Okay. Let's take humans, you know, 80 billion or so, uh, nerve cells and, um, and I, I forget the exact numbers, but certainly trillions and trillions of spikes that occur in any given small period of time yeah. as we engage in spontaneous mental activity, but also behavior. So now, how, what are you going to do? Okay, uh, uh, that is a, uh, a, a, a tough challenge. Not only that, because, the, you know, all the synapse formation and, uh, you know, just all of the connections that are dynamic. The entire yes. time, which sounds crazy. Well, there's, there's dynamics. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. The, the, even the structural connectivity isn't standing still. Uh, I used to actually, in my you know, 25 years ago, when I was doing wet lab work, that was one of the things that really I wanted to, to image with with uh, calcium dyes and, and with 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 you know I worked with with rat cultures at the time, neuronal cultures taken from the rat hippocampus to see the plasticity of neural connections across time, essentially taking videos. And uh, yeah, absolutely. It's changing all the time. It's not standing still. It's not static. It's dynamic. Uh, structure, the structure changes. The activity on top of the structure changes even faster. And so uh, this is a tough challenge. And I, and I think that that challenge cannot be met entirely with, let's say, you know, uh, let's, let's say machine learning or some sort of, you know, throw all the data in a big box, you know, wait a long time or maybe wait a short time and out pops an answer that says this is the 
this is what's going on. I don't think we can uh, we, we can quite take that black box approach. I, I do think, and I'm a strong proponent of of theoretical neuroscience. In other words, we do need some overarching mathematical principles. Uh, perhaps we can at some point in the future even call them laws that help us to understand our observations and structure them um, based on regularities that we believe exist in the world. Without that, uh, the the then it becomes a uh, uh, you know an exercise of of extracting regularities uh, from uh, high dimensional data, and that's what we for the most part are doing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking for patterns. We're looking for for stable, coherent uh, assemblies of brain regions, let's say, or their interactions. Uh, uh, or in terms of neurons, we're looking for population activity. We're looking for, you know, low-dimensional manifolds within which we can describe and predict neural activity. And that's important too. But I think we're still lacking uh, a theoretical framework that we can put over our observations and that also help us to decide what it is we should measure, right? There's lots of things that we, that we may, uh, that we may want to measure in the brain. But what, what is, what are the important variables to track? There are some that perhaps we haven't even figured out yet that that we are missing entirely. So it's sort of a fundamental thing that we need some toys to play with before we can figure out what other parts of those toys we need to collect to make the thing. And (laughs) that's a terrible analogy. I apologize. But, you know, I I, I sometimes think of laws and even, um, you know, dimensionality reduction and manifolds and anything like that to reduce the parameters that we use to think about all of these things just as shortcuts to the eventual simulation. But, you know, so, so this is where complexity comes in because it's so complex that to actually really recapitulate it, you have to simulate the whole thing. And that takes infinity. I would quibble with that just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I wouldn't advocate simulating the whole thing in the sense that you know literally everything has to be included in a, in a simulation to understand the real system because then you what you end up doing is you replicating the the complicated system you're studying by another complicated system and yep. now you've you've gained nothing really uh you've gained something because you can manipulate the simulation perhaps more you can use it for forecasting and perturbations and so forth but but it is not quite understanding uh of of the kind that I'm that I'm driving at and mind you, complexity, as I view it, it does not necessarily mean uh, a uh, an endless profusion and and uh, uh, you know, a, a massing of facts and, and elements. You know, so it's not complicatedness. Uh, complexity right. has its own uh, lawful behavior to it. It's unpredictable in many ways, but but it doesn't that doesn't mean that it's that it's uh, entirely random. Uh, complexity kind of, as I like to view it, it, sort of resides in between randomness and, you know, sort of complete disorganization. And on the other, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, complete regularity or, or, or simple replication. Yeah. Uh, complexity is somewhere in the middle. So complexity, if you want to take it seriously, doesn't mean that we have to look at everything at once. It means that we need to identify those system variables, those things that we need to track. That inform us about uh, the state of the system and allow us to uh, to predict its future to some extent, and that is still an ongoing project in our field. I, I would say networks are one of those ingredients. Uh, 
and I think increasingly uh, in neuroscience dynamics is the is the second ingredient that I think people uh, are, are certainly taking taking uh, advantage of and pay attention to. And so the intersection of networks and dynamics is kind of where I feel like there's a lot of interesting things happening right now. Um, uh, the, the that means dynamics on networks, but it also means dynamics off networks. How networks change across time, and how that change in turn leads to changes of the functional dynamics on top of those network structures. Yeah, this is what hopefully we'll get into this pretty deeply in just a little bit here. So, um, I could, just to move us forward, because now I just want to perseverate on every point, but because I don't advocate s- simulation, sir. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I, 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 and I know that you don't either. Um, so, but do you think that network neuroscience is going to provide the quote unquote breakthrough that neuroscience has seemingly uh, sought for so long? And, and some, some people, some people expect at some point to happen. Well, uh, uh, I think, I think what it has done, uh, it has, uh, off, it offers a new perspective that says the brain is, in some ways, all, it's not that different from other complex systems. It is a complex system. It belongs to that family of natural uh, biological entities that we study, like the ecology, like a metabolic network, like a protein network. There's a, there are neural networks and there's brain networks. There are some commonalities here. There are some differences, domain-specific differences, of course. So, uh, so it takes away the aura of mystery to some extent and says, here's a, here's a, here's a perspective that we can use. It's productive. It allows us to understand and uh, explain phenomena better than we were able before. When you say breakthrough, what does that mean, right? I don't know. <laughs> That's, if, if we knew what it meant, it, it's sort of like, it's an interesting sort of conundrum. I'm not a philosopher, but, you know, if we knew what the, what the critical question was, uh, that we needed to ask to understand how the brain works, then we would also have the answer most likely at the same time. Well, let, we can think of a breakthrough in physics, right? Like general right. relativity made us fundamentally understand the universe in a different way and and be able to ask questions in a different way. And maybe that's along the lines of what breakthrough means. But of course, we don't know how what it would look like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who, you know, I'm not a great uh, um, predictor of the future, honestly. But I, and I say this very informally, and I'm sure many listeners will, will disagree with, with this. I don't think neuroscience is anywhere close to that at this point. Um, if you, if you line up neuroscience and physics sort of on a, on a common time axis, I think we are, uh, you know, maybe we are somewhere in the 19th century right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Our tools and our approaches. We're still pretty naive. I include, I talk about myself here. We're still pretty naive. When we look at the brain and we're still trying to figure out basic things um, of how it's organized and how it's structured and what are the important things to uh, to to track, uh, how does dynamic uh, activity unfold, uh, how does it relate to behavior? We're still, I think, very much at the at the beginning of, of, of that. I agree with you, and that's frustrating. It is it is frustrating, but it's also part of a historical process, you know. And uh, of course, we want to push to the point where we have something like relativity or, or quantum theory or some other construct that really changes things and opens up new horizons and lets us see things in different ways. Those those days will come. I don't know when. I do believe that that having theory and investing in theory and training students and postdocs to learn about theory. Not just computational modeling, but actual uh, theory 
is important in uh, in in making that making that possible for the for the, for the future. So I think we're 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 not we're not there yet. Um, I don't think network neuroscience in itself will give us the answer. I, I'm not uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm I think I'm sane enough to to not uh, claim that it's the answer to everything. It isn't, but it's an important um, perspective. And one that I, that has certainly given me a lot of insight, and I hope it has given other people insight too, and it will grow, and perhaps link up with other parts of um, of interdisciplinary uh, complexity research in the future, and 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 then maybe we'll get closer to that ultimate goal of understanding and, and sort of you know finding a, a theoretical framework that really fits. Is there a flagship um, result or advancement that network neuroscience has made thus far that? When you're when you're at a party and someone says, "What is, what have you done for us?" Do you hold up? You don't hold up small world network, right? Small small world has got us started. It was a historic, uh, almost an historic artifact. Uh, in fact, it was it was around in social sciences at least since the, I think 70s. Um, so it wasn't really discovered in the 90s. It was kind of just popular in some ways right. um, uh, uh, enshrined in this extremely uh, uh, simple and 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 ingenious model that. Since Logan's published, no, there's a lot has happened since. Well, I mean, where do I start? I think there have been lots of advances. First of all, the notion of uh, under taking like, taking connectivity and interaction and making that the central uh, mm-hmm. aspect that that is really not the traditional way in which neuroscience has been conducted. There are many uh, historical precedents, of course, to uh, uh, researchers, scientists studying connections and studying anatomy. But it really came into the um, into its own in a new way uh, through this uh, application of, of network methodology. So the notion that, for instance, somewhat jokingly, not all brain regions are created e- equal. <laughs> you know, uh, of course, the, we've talked in the, in cognitive neuroscience forever, um, not forever, but for maybe for. Um, decades certainly about parts of the brain that are you know multimodal or polymodal or association regions regions that are in, engaged in more complex processes planning uh, integration of sensory inputs across modalities memory etc and um, the other regions are more peripheral let's say more engaged in, in, in sensory processing in a single modality those distinctions are not uh, uh, as clean as they appear, but nevertheless, that's been a framework that we've been working with in cognitive neuroscience forever. And now we we suddenly have a way to um, get to that distinction using network science methodology, and that's the notion, let's say, of hubs, highly connected regions with diverse connections that 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 cross uh, many boundaries that that um, uh, help to integrate information from many sources. Uh, the notion that there's those kinds of cortical hubs, subcortical hubs, even neuronal hubs now have neurons that have more, that are more heavily connected, have more inputs, more outputs. That certainly is something that people did not really consider that much um, before all this took off. We can now routinely identify those regions in neuroscience data sets, uh, whether they are dynamic or whether they are anatomical. The notion of communities, of network modules or communities that uh, allow us to group neurons and brain regions according to their mutual affiliation. Uh, they are the similarity in their activity patterns, their statistical dependencies, 
um, that's a technical advance that uh, allows us to coarse grain the system, right? Mm-hmm. Take a high dimensional recording and map it down onto clusters of elements that are um, mutually more connected internally and less connected between. Uh, that's a, a standard approach now in many neuroscience uh, applications, and it comes from, from from network science and complexity science. That's a complex system is it has that coarse graining to it. That's one of its hallmarks. You know, uh, Herbert Simon uh, decades ago talked about uh, 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 the near decomposability of complex systems, and and he actually applied that to organizational structures in in. And, and other such, you know, non-neuronal uh, uh, systems, uh, that near decomposability, the fact that you can break a system down into components that are not totally separate, but they are internally denser and more causally engaged internally as opposed to between, that's a hallmark of complexity. And we find it in brain networks everywhere. Uh, so these are all things that I think network science has contributed to, 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 to brain studies. And we can now... Um, deploy these new ways of looking at the brain also in, in very uh, 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 concrete clinical applications. You know, a lot of interest uh, in human neuroscience is directed at understanding the origin of uh, a brain disorders um, and, uh, and those network science tools and techniques have made a difference in allowing us to look at um, Features of the brain from a from a very different perspective. We're looking at individual variations uh, among people, with and without conditions, uh, different developmental stages across the lifespan, uh, in relation to the genetic markers. This is all now made possible because of the uh, network neuroscience approach. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So, so there are a lot of complex systems, a lot of networks in the universe. If we step outside, so you know, in in a couple minutes, I want to talk, we're going to dive deeper into the actual brain and talk about the different perspectives and contributions of uh, network science. But stepping out of brains for a second, are, you know, is there something unique about brains? You're just talking about the hub structure and, you know, the, the different structures that are sort of hallmarks of complex systems. But is there something different about brains that just jumps out in the network sense relative to other known complex systems? Well, uh, I, there's many aspects of of how nervous systems are structured, how they how they're built, and are not shared by other um, by, by other uh, complex networks out there. I mean, the big contrast I, I sometimes draw in my class is between social networks, let's say Facebook, Twitter, what have you, and the brain. One of the unique aspects of the brain is, is it seems it seems like a very trivial observation. It's a physical system. It's actually, you know, I have one right between my ears as I talk to you. It occupies, you know, about, you know, whatever, 1300 mils of volume. And, uh, and I have to power it. I have to eat, you know, I have to take in food so that, um, I can keep making ATP and keep that thing running because mm-hmm. it takes up 20% of my energy budget, even though it's only 2% of my body. And that's efficient. And that's efficient. Yeah. So, uh, those those fundamental facts about about the brain are I mean these are really fundamental facts I, I'm really not joking here I I feel like that is where brain networks and other networks really diverge a social network you know certain people on Twitter can have 80 million followers apparently uh, and there's no cost attached to that mm-hmm. um, uh, those links can be made you know ad infinitum but 
in the brain, uh, it being a physical system, any con- any physical connection, any synaptic connection, any axon that is made takes up volume. You know, any every axon, every connection is you know, in 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 a sense a little cylinder that has a light diameter, a radius, and a length and an extension. And uh, for it to be there, it has to uh, nibble at a limited resource, and that's volume. That fundamental point was made, understood, and and written down by Ramon y Cajal, our you know uh, granddaddy, if you wish, grand yeah. the, the grandfather of <laughs> of neuroscience in general. Uh, he wrote about this, understood that fact, and thought that it was a driving factor in um, making neurons the way they look, uh, driving morphology of neurons and the diversity of morphological types that he saw. So, brain is physical. Any connection you want to make, physical connection, takes up volume and space. That sets up a competition. You know, that sets up a uh, an economic contest, a trade-off between having the connection and making that investment in it versus not having it. And so our the connectivity, the actual physical network that we carry between our two ears is shaped by that. And I strongly believe it's shaped by that uh, uh, ongoing competition uh, of, uh, you know, can I afford that connection? What is the value of that connection in terms of making the brain perform better? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of you know guiding adaptive behavior and 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 promoting survival versus uh, energy consumption energy needs and um, so the so the brain has a has a very peculiar structure to it in part because it has to negotiate that trade-off it has to be functional it has to be adaptive it has to support the organism that it's residing it but it also has to be economical it has to be cheap that's not something that I ever really felt like I needed to think of when I was, you know, recording neurons in the frontal eye field, for instance, while monkeys made eye movements. You don't really think about that at all. And in fact, I think it's highly underappreciated in general, which is maybe what you're saying. I, I don't know. Yeah, if you're... it's yeah, it's, it's still I mean, I think it, it's it's become more appreciated the last few years in, in neuroscience. And, and, and there have been actually a number of really important thinkers and theoreticians and, and, and people who have studied this over the years. So this is not an entirely new idea, obviously, the people who have worked on this. But it is something that sets apart the brain from, let's say, a social network or, or the Internet or, or uh, other uh, such constructs that perhaps we can uh, conceptualize as uh, complex networks out there because there is that cost element to it and that link uh, to evolution. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, as a, as an evolutionary theorist once said, nothing in biology makes sense except in a lot of evolution. And you swap out biology and say neuroscience, you know, and I sort of subscribe to that. We have to remind ourselves that we are historical artifacts, right? There's a particular history that unfolded. And, um, and here we are. And, uh, there, there are sort of non-accidental elements to that history there are things that have to happen for um for intelligence to to emerge i do believe that but our brains are also subject to severe energy volume space wiring constraints so the the process cannot go unchecked uh and so in that sense i suspect our brains are actually along some dimensions quite suboptimal that's interesting because i was going to say it makes a connection to the free energy principle of carl friston whom you mentioned earlier and you know Trying to lower the, uh, you know, in a sense that is a energy minimization 
efficiency maximization theory in a sense, and not that we need to talk about the free energy principle, but but the brain and the internet are basically the same thing, right? The internet's just a big brain, right? It's no, conscious. Oh, no. Oh, tried, no? <laughs> trying to pull my chain? No, no, no. No, no, no. I, 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 don't, I don't buy that at all. In fact, I don't buy, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you are, you are going to get there. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll take the question out of your mouth, basically. It's also not very much, very similar to what we, what we now see in artificial neural networks, you know, mm -hmm. deep learning and, and, you know, all of those kinds of things that are out there now very, very successful. Uh, rebirth in some ways of the artificial neural network field that I remember was just, you know, emerging when I was a graduate student in sort of the mid eighties and was very exciting. And now it's, it's blossoming. It's, it's all around us and it's of great interest to many people as many applications and, and, and many very successful demonstrations of its power. Where I feel there's a di there's a divergence here is that, you know, it, none of the architectures that are used in implemented in deep learning networks are subject to uh, to uh, to a lot of these constraints I've just mentioned right um, you can make you can you can make an n square fully connected network sure mm -hmm. make a network that's randomly connected sure you can do that in in the real world in in terms of a, a system that you want to build and put into a, a living organism you cannot do it it will it will be uh, too wasteful in terms of volume and energy. So those those brains, that you know, sort of the random brain, cannot exist, uh, or the fully connected brain cannot exist. It's not even worth thinking about it as a potential uh, null model or a potential sort of al alternate reality because it isn't it isn't possible to build. We are stuck with the architectures that we have in a particular space of what you might call sort of the space of all possible networks. And in that niche, uh, that, that's where we are. And uh, whatever intelligence and uh, adaptive uh, behavior we can squeeze out of that niche, that's what we've, that's what we've got. We, there are certain things we, we will never be able to do with the brains that we have. Yeah, I was going to ask about this later, but let's go and explore it a little bit further since, since you mentioned it. I mean, first of all, you know, deep learning networks don't need to be constrained by any architectural constraints, right? And and therefore, you could say that uh, some people do consider architecture because, you know, in a convolutional neural network, let's say, uh, you know, you're constraining operations to parts of the spatial world and, con you know, convolving the inputs. And, you know, in the latest, let's say, Jim DiCarlo's lab, I just talked to Jim DiCarlo and you know, his models that, that uh, map onto brain, hier hierarchical brain areas, that in some very loose sense uh, is true to s architecture in maybe the loosest sense, though. I mean, do you, do you think that the AI world needs to pay more attention to architecture? Is there something fundamental about our architecture, which has been shaped to give rise to our to whatever intelligence we have and all across all animal species there's always some constraint is there something fundamental about that architectural constraint that is actually generative you know that is a cognitively good thing or could we just expand you know and make bigger and better fully connected models and somehow f optimize even better than you you know you just said earlier that we're in a great sense suboptimal which i agree with so we could optimize beyond us right Sure, Sorry, that's about it, seven questions. Sorry, that's seven questions. So, uh, uh, how do I how do I even begin to, to say this? First <laughs> of all, 
Now, just to make that clear, I'm really not an AI researcher. I, I, I have a, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm an outsider to that field. I look in from, from the neural network angle sometimes and I cheer, I cheer on my, my colleagues in AI. I, I think what they're doing is, is, is really changing the way we, we interact with data with, with the world at large. It's great stuff. Um, uh, it's just the, the comparison between, you know, real brains that, of the kind that I study, real nervous systems and, and AI seems flawed to me. It's, 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 uh, I, I I'm actually not. So let's break it down. So let's say, what is another analogy here that, that is similar, right? Let's take airplanes. Let's take a, a jet, a, a, a jet plane on the one side and a bird on the other side. Okay. Okay. Uh, no, nobody's advocating that planes ought to be built exactly as birds are built. Uh, that would be, uh, that would bring air travel to a halt even faster than COVID-19. Okay. <laughs> um, that would be, that would be that, that, that wouldn't work. Okay. So w- what's common between the two, you know, between a jet plane and a, and a bird is that they're somehow using similar, you know, laws of aerodynamics and, 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 you know, they both fly, but in very different ways. And, and planes can do things that birds can never do. And, uh, and that's, a, that's fine. Okay. And, but birds also do things that brains never do. They can and land and take off on a spot. I, I, you know, like many other people who are stuck at home currently, I, I look out my window a lot more. And I see birds doing stuff, you know, <laughs> and it's entertaining and you kind of appreciate how uh, incredibly versatile and adaptive uh, biological organisms can be, uh, how they can navigate their environment in ways that, uh, uh, you know, a, a plane certainly would not would not do so. so. So planes are more like AI systems. They are built to accomplish particular tasks that a natural biological system perhaps cannot accomplish and they do so much better and they're powerful they extend our abilities as as humans allow us to connect allow us to get to places this is good on the other hand if you are interested in in bird flight as if that's your scientific interest you probably want to study birds you know you don't want to study planes yeah not necessarily but but you know and, and also perhaps there is room for uh you know this is, connects to my old interest in, in robotics to build to build machines that are a little bit more like birds, right? You know, that are a little bit more like insects or or small small flying creatures that are much more uh, able to to navigate in, a, in, a, in, a, in an enclosed space. Perhaps are slower, but can gather sensory information or um, you know whatever. So there's there's a uh, an active field of sort of bionics and and biological robotics or biomimetics, as it used to be called. And that's that's technology. Uh, it's not uh, building airplanes, but it's trying to build something that is more like a bird or an insect, and learn from that. And so, if that's your research goal, if that's your application, then of course you would pay more attention to birds. Would an apt analogy here be in the AI world? So, to the airplane versus bird, uh, our current you know computer vision, right? Um, it's like saying, oh, we so airplane versus bird. Airplane, we solved flight and without understanding feathers. Uh, so computer vision, we solved vision without understanding the brain. Is that the apt analogy? Because that's a ridiculous statement, right? That we, well, it's, it's vision, but it isn't. I mean, it's, it's vision, right. yeah. in, it's vision, uh, for technological purposes. It's pattern recognition, maybe it's automatic surveillance, whatever the application may be, or it's, right. it's, you know, rec- recognizing features and medical images. This is all, these are important applications. 
And I don't think it makes sense to really, you know, to re-engineer a human brain to accomplish those tasks. Uh, let's do what we can do with, with, um, machine vision and AI and, and deep learning, uh, applications in that, in that problem space. Vision, biological vision is, is, is not, it's not just that, right? Right. right. For one thing, again, I'm connecting to my old, um, uh, area of robotics, which has taught me a lot. For, for one thing, I think of vision as an active process, okay? Um, I move my eyes around all the time. I'm not aware of it that much, but um, the image that I have seemingly stable in my head is actually moving across my retina at, uh, at a fairly high speed. And, and and I have to do that because otherwise I wouldn't be able to build a uh, you know any representation of my external world. And so biological systems are not like the eye is not a camera that sits on top of my computer right now looking at me. Uh, biological visual systems are active. They, they engage in, in their own motor activity to, to generate and create information and sample information from their environment, which then in turn is fed to the brain, right? Which is faced with a constantly changing input pattern that it now kind of builds up into this, you know, seemingly stable mental image that I have, uh, that I can operate on. And, um, uh, so that's, you know, that's n- most machine vision systems uh, aren't designed that way. And for good reason, they're not supposed to solve those kinds of problems. And there's other technological solutions for, for getting images than, than, than have retina, right? So and, uh, I mentioned it because it's, it's a flawed analogy. The, the bird airplane is a flawed analogy. And I'm wondering if it maps on, mapped on perfectly. So uh, yeah. we're, we're thinking along the same, same sorts of lines anyway. Yeah. So I did ask like seven questions there. I'll just remind you because I, I, I totally got us off track. So one of the questions, you know, well, you mentioned that you have to have the brain inside your skull. Now, a robot or a device does have to have, let's say, an AI system in a physical space as well. Uh, so that provides some constraints. What? Not necessarily. I mean, the fun of some of the robots that we built early, you know, uh, 20 years ago actually had a remote, you know, even at, even at 20 years ago, 25 years ago, it sort of had a remote link to a, yeah. a workstation or right. a machine that was not carried on board, but um, to which, you know, sensory input would be sent. And then that's where the brain was. Right. And then um, outputs would be sent to the effectors of, of of the robot, so I think you can to some extent circumvent that with a with a um, with a machine uh, that's operating in the real world. But where the machine, where such a robot has has constraints to deal with, is the nature of the sensory input, its own motor capabilities, uh, and its own time course that goes with that of moving around in an environment um, that cannot happen at a, at a nanosecond scale. That has to happen, you know, in at, at a similar time scale as, as, as let's say, biological organisms do do that. So those constraints apply, but but you can actually off offboard the the processing and have a deep net sitting somewhere, probably, uh, that, that that does all of that. So there's this sort of I'm sort of trying to advocate kind of a, a pluralism. Right. There is AI on one side. It has its own agenda and its own goals and aims. And and that's perfectly good. And then there's neuroscience, which has its own agenda, too, and, and goals and aims. They don't not necessarily match up perfectly, I don't think. So I would not advocate this, that AI must pay attention to how the brain works. I think it can be very uh, mutually informative. We can learn from each other a lot. But I I, I think that some of the 
the biological constraints that brains operate under that we mentioned already, like space and energy and so forth, and 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 his, his history, uh, um, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, having millions of years, billions of years of, of history behind us, those don't apply to AI, and um, and so it's it's a it's a flawed comparison uh, between the two. And there will, but there will be a gray zone in between where perhaps biomimetic robotics, you know. Some engineering applications will look more organism and brain-like, and perhaps also draw on AI advances. So there's going to be a spectrum of things here. So I, I mean, you had mentioned, and I reminded us that you had mentioned that the brain is suboptimal, and then, and then I asked, well, okay, so if you take away the constraints, could we potentially exceed the brain's level of optimality? And I'm not sure if optimality is the right. Because there's a value, or there's there's a judgment yeah. in that in the word optimality. But so I'll go ahead and just ask the question anyway. You know, could we exceed the quote unquote optimality then, since the brain, since um, you know, hardware, physical hardware, not wetware, isn't uh, restricted to those constraints? Yeah, we have we have actually tried to address the issue in a simulation context uh, here in my lab last few years, uh, sort of. Uh, coming up with a concept that we call network morphospace, which is a space of morphologies or topologies in this case of networks, where the, where our brain sits in a particular part of that space, and so and uh, and around it are other possible brains that perhaps are wired somewhat differently uh, and configured a little bit differently. And now the question is, are those better, quote better, in, along some d- dimension of uh, performance? Okay. And the, the dimensions that we picked uh, of performance to actually study uh, have to do with communication. And, you know, it seems uh, uh, that one uh, important aspect of brain function is that, that neurons can communicate with each other and, and, and through that communication process can influence each other's activity patterns and sort of probabilistic uh, um, response functions and so forth. And um, in, in the in the brain at large, what we what what we have to to accomplish that that job is is axonal pathways or fiber tracts that connect, let's say, remote brain regions with each other. They're laid out in a certain pattern. We more or less have the same pattern. All of us. This is to do with development and evolution once again and genetics. And the question then arises: Is that pattern optimally configured to facilitate communication across the brain? Uh, like a like a perfectly well laid out highway system, you know, where all cities can <laughs> can communicate with each other along sort of you know very direct paths, or is there a way to improve upon it by rewiring or by adding connections or perhaps even by subtracting connections? What does that look like? So we can't make do the experiment in in real life, you know. Obviously, we can't do that <laughs> yet. Not no uh, yet, but that yet will be a, a long you know they'll, they'll be, <laughs> But what we can do, I will say, is we can study evolutionary relationships among different species. And that is something that we also have done and are doing in the lab here um, to look at different mammalian species, for example, and, and, co- and compare connection patterns to, to, to see if there's any evolutionary trends. But we can't run an experiment on this. What, what we can do is we can try to do a computational experiment so we can implement a, a brain network in, in a computer. We can we can simulate its activity or communication patterns, and then we can modify the structure of that network, the, the underlying anatomy, and we can study again: is it doing, is it working any better now? Okay, and so that that's a theoretical exercise to sort of navigate that morphospace and see if are we are we on top of a hill, you know, where 
where we're, we're optimal. Any step we take in any direction gets us to, to our worst space, or are we are we on a on an incline and and it's hard, really hard to, to 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 climb up the up the hill. And and you know, so that's those are the kinds of things that we have been doing, have been trying to do. Is communication the right metric to use? I'm not sure. But in that in that method, we are on a hill, essentially, correct? It's it is the case that it's very hard to find uh, a close rewiring that is doing any better than what than what we have. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but the, but here's a tricky aspect of this question, and that is what is the mod? What is your? How do you define communication? Okay. Yeah. And uh, this gets us into the whole uh, interesting scenario of what we call communication dynamics, which is very much a, a problem that resides in the intersection of networks on one side and dynamics on the other. You know, th- th- think of a brain network as a fairly sparse uh, network of connections among neurons, let's say. You know, in fact, uh, if, we, if we roll the numbers uh, uh, of all neurons in the brain, I think uh, roughly about one in, one in a million of all neuron pairs have a direct connection with each other. The, yeah. the rest are not directly connected. So they have to, if, they, if there's any chance of them interacting at all, they need to do so through intermediate uh, uh, steps. So what does, how does communication look like in such a network? Is it unfolding along some uh, preferred route, for instance? Uh, the shortest path is often used in network science as a way of uh, navigating a network to go from place A to place B, do so in the fewest number of steps, right? Uh, if you want to send a, a package from, from, from here to some other city, uh, you hope that FedEx, you know, uses uh, something close to the shortest path. Otherwise, that package will rumble around for years. I'm still waiting on the shoes that I ordered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, now in 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 this context I just mentioned, you know, shipping or or or, or communication of, of goods in a real world network like this. Of course, FedEx does not just send out packages at random, hoping that they arrive at their destination at some point. That's sort of a diffusion process, okay? Very wasteful. But what's good about it is you don't have need to any you don't need any information to do it. You just send out, you just broadcast, you send out your packages, and some of them arrive, and some some will take a million years to arrive. That's, however, not um, uh, the way most people think about brain communication. They think there's the shortest path that's being used. There's a direct way of of two brain regions, two neurons if they need to, to connect to each other. Sets up an important problem because the shortest path can't be discerned, can't be plotted, can't be found without some global knowledge of the network. Yeah. Um, when you when you come to a new city and you and you and you step onto a subway uh, a station and you look for what's my I want to get to the other end of the city, you look at the plan, you look at the subway routes, the way they are laid out, and you have a way of plotting to go from A to B in, in, you know, hopefully a relatively short number of steps. So you'd have to have a perfect model of the structure of your, your brain yeah. would need a perfect model of its own structure. But neurons don't have that knowledge right. um, and, and brain regions don't have that knowledge. There's no global map built into uh, the brain that guides communication and, and kind of routes uh, communication patterns. So the shortest path concept in my view, is a little suspect when it's when we apply it to the brain. It's at least it needs at least there needs to be a discussion uh, as to how uh, a brain network might access a, a shortest path, mm-hmm. um, and and that's a non-trivial problem if you don't have that global top-down knowledge of how your connections are laid out. So that's it's a big open area right now. If I'm 
I'm sort of excited about it because I think communication is a key neuroscience uh, question that we may ask about how, how brain networks, how, how neurons, how elements in a brain network communicate with each other is an, is an open question. And I feel like it's been understudied. Um, we have been focused on recording from individual neurons or brain regions. Um, but remember, those recordings do not directly capture communication patterns. They only capture the outcome of those communication patterns. The fact that neurons change their firing rates or um, response properties, the fact that brain regions, you know, both signals go up or go down, that is the consequence of interactions that themselves are very hard to track. So uh, let, let's just jump in and dive deeper on communication dynamics then. And there's a really nice review that you and your colleagues have written recently about this, talking about how it might be the key to, you know, bridging the connectome, the structural parts of the brain, with what's called functional connectivity. And I'm not sure if we've even defined functional connectivity yet, but maybe you can make the distinction between those two. Yeah, yes. That's a really important distinction to make. And um, it's, it's often forgotten even by practitioners in the field. Uh, on the one side, the connectome, the way we originally proposed it 15 years ago, the connectome was meant to be about structure. It was meant about, it was meant to be a wiring diagram. It was meant to be a complete list of all the connections uh, and the elements and how they're connected. Sort of a top down map. It's a subway map, really, of how things are connected and at, at a given level of scale. Single neuron, uh, seemed intractable back then and still is fairly intractable, I would say. Um, but uh, whole brain, you know, brain regions, that's tractable now. And um, and that was sort of the level that, that we aimed at as a, as a first shot. So that's anatomy. Okay. But, you know, to some people in neuroscience, anatomy is boring. Because boring. It's, it's, right. It just sits It just sits there. What, what, you know, that's not really what the brain is doing. Not to you, though. You're an anatomy kind of guy, right? I'm joking. Okay. Uh, I, I remember a time, you know, 20 years ago, I was interested in anatomy always. But 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 and but anatomy was not a, a hot area in neuroscience uh, 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 during that time, and you know, sort of a couple of decades ago. I think it's gotten a lot more attention again, and I'm really glad about it because it is the foundation of our field. Look at Kahal, okay? He um, his 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 incredible uh, insights were. Uh, many of them came from him considering morphology of neurons and how they're connected. So that's anatomy. On the other side, we have functional connectivity. So what is that? Oh boy. Okay. Now we're getting into the, uh, into a discussion here. So abstractly speaking, if you have two elements in a complex system, and let's say these two elements engage in, 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 in activity of some kind, voltage going up, voltage going down, spikes happening, what have you, what you can now do is you can construct a measure of statistical dependence between them. Uh, how much does the state of one element tell you about the state of the other? It's another way of saying it. Uh, if one element goes up, does the other one reliably go up as well? Or does it go down? Or does it do whatever? And I can't predict what, it, what it's doing. There's many different ways of measuring this cross-correlation being uh, the simplest one. You just take two time courses and you cross-correlate. And if they're highly correlated, either positively or negatively, then do you have information from, you know, there's shared information between them. Yeah. And you can do information theoretic measures, you can do other stuff. So it's a very simple uh, statement about statistical dependence. It does not, generally speaking, does not imply causal interaction and should not. Okay. 
Functional connectivity is purely an observational construct that says two things um, seem to be statistically related or not. It, you cannot infer from that, typically speaking, that they are also causing each other to be statistically related. You can't even infer that they're structurally connected, correct? No, you cannot. Um, structural connections are much, much sparser. Uh, statistical dependencies, I can, I can usually get a non-zero value for any observation, <laughs> observational pair that I, I can take any neuron, any two neurons in, in, in the brain and, and define some coefficient of how much relationship there is in terms of their spike trains or their bold activity patterns. I can do that. But I also know that I mentioned, you know, in, in, at the neuronal level, only one in a million of those neuronal pairs will actually have a structural connection, a direct connection. Okay. So this is where it gets tricky, though, because let's stay at the whole brain level for the moment. Let's say we have two, three, four hundred brain regions, sort of a good number that we work with typically in our in our day to day work these days. Uh, the structural connectivity in terms of the pathways, the white matter pathways that connect these remote brain regions, it may have a density of five, ten, fifteen, maybe twenty percent. Hmm. Um, so it's much denser than individual neurons, but it's certainly not a fully connected network. At the level of functional connectivity, if I do something like cross-correlation or mutual information of activity traces in, at the whole brain level, that's always a full matrix because oh. all pairs of brain regions have some level of relatedness, yes. yeah. have some level of similarity, uh, even if it's near zero, of how their activity levels vary across time. So you have to threshold it. So you, you either threshold or you... Um, build, and, and we've done this in years past, or you uh, uh, try to um, model um, the, in the um, functional connectivity between brain regions that are not structurally connected and understand them as a consequence of multiple indirect paths, mm -hmm. right? Um, because remember, for, for two sites to influence each other, it doesn't have to be direct. It right. can also be, you know, A connects to B connects to C. What happens a lot, especially at the whole brain level with the kinds of signals we get in MRI, is that there will be ultimately a correlation between A and C, even though A and C are not directly structurally connected because there is what we call transitivity. There's sort of like correlations kind of propagate outward and closure ultimately because the outer ends of such a chain tend to, tend to share some variance. They tend to be connected. In, in that functional sense. Now, that is a totally, uh, it's really simple fact. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, there have been recently a lot of criticism of functional connectivity, which I think is slightly misguided because I don't think functional connectivity really aims at establishing or portraying causality. It should not anyways. Well, you have terms like Granger causality and things like that. Granger causality is a, it's a different, slightly different construct. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, related to transfer entropy and other information theoretic measures that tries to kind of infer a particular type of causality, which says the future state or evolution of an element is better predicted by taking into account the past states of another element. So you have, if you, if you have, you have an element A and you want to predict how, what is the next state of A, uh, you know, a second or a minute down, down the road. You can use its own history to do that, but you do better if you take into account the past states of another element somewhere. And that, that improves your prediction. In that sense, you say that element, that other element, is causally engaged in 
uh, molding or shaping the future states of A. And in that sense, am I going to ascribe a causal inference? That is a variant, I think, of functional connectivity that still is based on observation, still, still, still is based on time series analysis, still is based on temporal precedence cues that we often use to infer causality, but it is not a direct portrait of, of, causal, of causal interaction right. either. In fact, causality is very hard to get to. <laughs> uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's a word that rolls off the tongue very nicely, has a lot of appeal to it. But boy, it's definitely uh, not easy to get to, especially when you when you're in an observational context and you really can't intervene or make perturbations as we often, you know, we're not we can't do that in human brain imaging very very easily at least. So uh, we we kind of we, we have you know of course there's ways of mod trying to use models to infer causal so-called effective connectivity, mm -hmm. which is uh, I think a very interesting uh, way of doing it and. It's, some of my my old colleague Cal, Cal Friston in the lead uh, have done this for many years, and uh, it turns out that that that's also not to totally straightforward. It's actually a hard process because you have to identify a a, mo a a generative model essentially of your data that is parsimonious, as simple as possible, generates essentially generates uh, data that match what you have ob observed on the basis of a structural and physiological. Um, model that's built into it, and that's a difficult process of model selection and, and inference um, that takes uh, up a lot of uh, uh, you know a lot of computing and thinking and so forth. Great way of doing things, unfortunately, doesn't scale very well. If you go to more than you know a, a, a dozen or so elements uh, or brain regions, uh, it, the model space is, it becomes so large that it you can't. Explodes, yeah. It just cannot effectively handle it anymore. And mm. so that, that process of inference, inferring a causal interaction from observe, from observations is, is very difficult, uh, notoriously difficult, especially difficult in the case of a system that's so high dimensional, uh, so fine grained and so interconnected as the brain. So, and, uh, we have to just be uh, honest about it. It's not an easy process. Functional connectivity does not give us that, but. But I will say it does, it's not nothing. It does have lawful relationships to structural connectivity. Some of them are, are fairly robust. Uh, and it, uh, it tells us something about the similarity of firing patterns or activity patterns across the brain. And has given rise in our field to a whole new way of breaking down the brain into systems. Hmm. Uh, internally coherent because they share time course similarity and they're externally uh, uh, diverse and different. And, uh, there's a huge literature of showing how these systems relate to activation, cognitive activations when people do tasks, to anatomy, and, uh, even to other data domains like genetics, uh, and develop. So, uh, it's been very productive in many ways, um, but it's not, it's not meant to be, uh, it can't really aspire to be a causal uh, a framework in itself. David Hume is just laughing in his grave right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if that covers functional connectivity well enough, but I want to bring in the communication dynamics story. So on the one hand, you have structural uh, connectivity. On the other hand, you have the functional connectivity. And sort of between these two is communication dynamics. How, how does it sit between structural and functional connectivity? I see it. I see communication and dynamics as kind of the missing link. 
uh, that that um, allows us to bridge uh, between um, fairly static, although also changing across time, anatomy, on the one side, sparse connectivity that's structural and physical and real. On the other side, this, um, these, these statistical descriptions based on uh, dependencies, really, across time courses, which are non-causal. Underneath it all, and partly invisible to us at this point, is that process of signaling and communication that occurs. Uh, neurons in our heads right now are firing furiously, and uh, as a result of that, of those, of that activity, impulses are being sent along axons that, Im- that impact on their targets, changing their status, their state, their firing pattern subtle, subtly or very dramatically. And these communication events of elements in our brains currently communicating with each other at furious speed and at a very high rate, that is something that we, I would contend, we cannot directly observe right now. What right. we can what we can observe is we can record from neurons, yes. We can record spikes, yes. But the spikes are recorded locally. They, they are sort of what a point source is doing at this point in time. But we don't really see the interaction. We don't see the – even if we have perfect knowledge of all neurons all the time, we still don't see which connections are active or inactive. Sort of the pathway that the yeah. information flows so I'm I'm really thinking of it as a as a, as a flow as a, a a rapid fire exchange of directed signals that run down physical synaptic pathways axons etc. Uh, that we can't directly observe. That to me is a causal substrate. That to me is like those are the causes of the firing patterns that we then observe mm. of the ups and downs of the bolt signal of the changes in activity and activity rate and firing spike timings that we see in single neurons. The information flow. The information flow, right. Uh, and um, so, you know, that's there's a, there's a gap here, I think, methodologically in terms of technology, not being able to really visualize this very well yet. It requires typically a process of inference to infer those interactions. This gets back to our just previous point about causality and how hard that is to infer if we don't see it directly and and it is the, sort of the missing link and I, and I i i have never actually talked with carl about this and i hope i'm not um uh, doing uh, uh damage to his to his to his framework here but i but i but i do think of it in some ways as a as one way of conceptualizing effective connectivity because uh-huh. it is uh the blow-by-blow account of which neurons which brain regions causally affect each other through that communication process it's going to be a very dynamic construct going to happen it's not going to be something that is static uh, uh, over any period of time it's going to be sort of like a like a you know think of it like a bunch of flashes of light that occur uh almost instantaneously uh, change a target's behavior and then that target in turn sends out a, a signal or not and, and that propagates to, through, through the network like a like a like a like a wave or a, uh, a cascade. Okay, right. I feel like that is where technologically we don't have very good tools to see that directly, and uh, methodologically the inference is very hard to do. But it is the level that I feel is most closely related to effective connectivity that we would really like to have. And it's so it's a it's a it's a gap in our knowledge and understanding, and I think that would close the gap between the sort of static sparse anatomy on one side and the statistical dependencies, which are non-causal, however, on the other side, functional connectivity. 
And but you also think of it as I'm not sure if this is in the same vein as you were just talking about causally, but as at the communication dynamics level, being able to gate information flow is that on a causal level as well, and and allow either allow information flow to information to flow easier or gate it, and so it in itself can serve as a way for the brain to uh, integrate and segregate information. Yes. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Very good point you're making here. So we should not think of uh, of, of these. I, I don't think of these communication patterns as something that sort of you know all communication channels are open all the time. Um, uh, that 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 can't be. That doesn't sound right to me. I, I do think that just as you said, that there is a way for uh, for for brain, but for the brain itself, perhaps for modulatory systems. Uh, Etc. to open and close communication channels selectively. Perhaps this is in the end the way that the navigation problem is solved. You know, like the the problem we mentioned earlier about accessing the shortest path. Maybe there's a way for paths to open and close in a way that allows information to flow one way and not the other, and carve out sort of a structure um, where you know com- certain communication patterns are more privileged. Are more frequent, um, are more abundant, while others are shut, cut, shut out com- uh, completely. You know, um, this is something where I'm, I'm hoping this is one of my next. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I want to undertake in in the next months and years, maybe to um, to get away a little bit from these from these communication models that treat the brain as if it's a gas. You know, where everything is happening all at once. And more of a, uh, of a system where, you know, certain brain regions, certain elements of the system really aren't meant to communicate, but others are communicating much more frequently, much more readily. And what are the mechanisms and what are the network mechanisms that allow that to happen? And, and so that's actually one of our next, you know, ideas for projects down the road a few months or so to get back communication and actually look exactly at this. Like you said, uh, you can't measure the communication dynamics directly, so you have to build models. Um, can you just talk about how you, you know, just briefly, how you build models? I mean, you give kind of a two-step process. <laughs> I mean, one thing that you that, that you know, for instance, right now we're working with uh, a spiking neuron data, um, data where neurons have been recorded from in a setting where we have access to their, to their individual spiking activity. Mm-hmm. So how do we infer that communication process? We build, we do things like transfer entropy, which is sort of a more general version of what you mentioned earlier, stranger causality, a way of inferring causal interactions based on um, criteria. Let's say whether a you know whether a uh, another neuron spike train adds information about the future of of, of a neuron that you're looking at. Increases or decreases entropy, in other words. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that results in uh, networks where we have pairwise interactions, directed interactions, actually, that uh, uh, are inferences on, presumably, on causal dependencies. We we get a direct, we get an we get an arrow that points in one direction between any pair of neurons, and the arrow has a weight. Sometimes it's zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's no no uh, evidence of any causal interaction at all and sometimes it's bigger than zero and so we have some evidence that based on the on the spike trains that there is a graded uh, causal influence between going from one direction uh, to the other so that's one way that we can infer 
make you know, sort of in, try to infer those processes. But there's big problems here. Uh, because it's an information theoretic measure, transfer entropy, it requires quite a lot of data to actually actually stabilize. And so we can't get to the blow by blow, you know, millisecond to millisecond account of who's communicating. We have to take a lot of data and sort of smush it together and say, on average, how do neurons interact? Same conundrum in in whole brain fMRI recordings mm-hmm. where we have time courses, you know, sampled usually at excruciatingly low rates, you know, of like once a second if we're really good, um, and so often two or three uh, seconds apart, and and that those are noisy measurements and and have 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 issues have to do with the with the imaging process itself, and we typically infer interactions uh, based on many minutes of data, many um, dozens of observations, hundreds of observations sometimes that all get put together into a single matrix of functional connectivity. Okay. <laughs> but what we don't yet have is a more fine-grained account of what happens that second, the next second, the next second. We, right. we don't have – we are working on this now uh, with my my uh, colleagues here at, at IU. Um, we're about to put some papers out there that, that – uh, Try to address that issue in fMRI recording specifically, but but it's still a, a, a sort of unsolved problem. We don't have that blow by blow account of communication. We have an overall picture of dependencies, and then sometimes a way of inferring the spike trains direction. But we're not, you know, we're not directly observing or even inferring that um, you know fast dynamic that must occur must occur yeah uh, but we can't it's difficult to see and so this is this is to me you know in the last remaining you know who knows how many years i've got left uh, as i'm nearing my expiration date i'm hoping <laughs> to make some progress along those lines and then exit the stage uh, and uh, give it to the younger younger generation yeah. raise your arms in in uh, uh, triumph as you exit exactly <laughs> Well, Olaf, let's see. Uh, there's um, a handful of questions I still have for you if, if, if um, in these remaining moments. Is there anything that we need to add to communication dynamics to to wrap up? No, I think we've touched upon it. It's an open topic, right? And uh, and one that uh, when we wrote the review a couple of years ago, one of the impulses to do that was to kind of raise the question and, and raise, bring the topic out there because I feel it's been underappreciated. Yeah, well, that's – I mean – you know, the, the network neuroscience comes around, there's, you know, the structural stuff, and we all know about functional connectivity, and it's like, oh, now we have this to deal. There's always, you know, a new set of problems to deal with. It keeps us busy, you know. Yeah, it, sure. It gets boring if there isn't something new now, now and then. <laughs> so, um, going back to, you know, the, the, the brain versus other complex networks, so we have the connectome for a lot of different species now, and and you you kind of go through them in your talks sometimes. I don't think I've heard you talk about the human brain relative to other species. Is there anything that we know about the human brain because we're so special? You know, is there is there anything <laughs> anything in the network neuroscience world that jumps out that is unique about human brains relative to other species at this stage? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, a couple of years ago, I went to a, um, to a meeting that the title of the meeting actually, I think, was What Makes Us Human. Uh-huh. They were bringing in people from different um, neurobiological perspectives, genetics, evolution, uh, AI, but also then, you know, connectivity and brain. And I, I said to the organizer, I'm very embarrassed because I really don't, <laughs> I, I, I've got nothing, okay? Yeah. 
apart from the fact that, of course, it has its own topology and it looks different uh, uh, just when you look at it from, let's say, even a non-human primate brain or another mammalian species brain, the very global things that we've so far been focused on in our field, things like hub structure or communities or even um, uh, issues about communication, they are, seem to be playing out fairly similarly across brains of different species. Modularity. So they, yeah, you can find mo modular organization all the way down to invertebrate brains. Uh, uh, you know, we've looked with, with colleagues in Drosophila for a little bit. We are going to get a lot more Drosophila data very soon if it's not already uh, arrived. So, um, and I suspect a lot of what's driving those organizational principles have to do with, you know, very general requirements of what brains are supposed to do. Right, right. Guide behavior, integrate sensory inputs, often from, from many sources, uh, have uh, access to, to past information through memory and integrate all this in real time to, to guide, especially motor, um, motor behavior out there, uh, whether it's gesticulating with your arms or, or speech or what have you. So, um, uh, so there's sort of a common design specification that, that brains kind of have to fulfill. And so perhaps that is driving uh, that at a very global level, brains are, you know, have some common features to them, such as modular, modular organization, uh, some prevalence of hub structure, um, some regions or some parts of the brain being typically deeper in and more diversely connected right. for integration of information purposes. So the glass is either half full or half empty. Okay. You can say, well, you found, so in other words, you're telling me you found nothing. Okay. <laughs> the half empty perspective, or you say, wow, you've hit upon a universal principle. Okay. You found something that's actually shared, uh, widely shared across different species. And, um, you know, sometimes I'm on one side, sometimes I'm on the other side. I think so far, Specifically, human uh, topological features are not that evident to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, it may be because we haven't dug deeply enough; data haven't been uh, uh, of, of high enough quality or high enough resolution. But so far, the, uh, the 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 things that are shared across, certainly across primates, certainly across mammals, I would say, the set of things that are shared are, are much larger than the things that are unique. Mm -hmm looks to me and so that's that's where we are so uh, if you ask me what makes the human brain special in terms of its network features i don't have a lot of answers for you so i think yeah the, the, maybe the title of this episode will be olaf sporns humans eh. that <laughs> no that's not that's not to say that because remember it's not just the brain topology it's also how how the nervous system is connected and how we are connected to our environment and our world. So actually, when I gave that talk um, at this meeting about what makes us human, my, my takeaway message was that we shouldn't, it's a mistake to look at specific human features of something totally wonderfully enabling in our connectivity, that it makes us so highly intelligent as apparently we are. Uh, Sure. His hands are waving in the air. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm not so sure that, you know, but you know, one thing that 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 is, somewhat uniquely human is that we have found ways to transmit knowledge uh, across generations. We have a way of building culture. We have social interactions that are, un I would say, unparalleled in the 
animal kingdom, okay, in terms of the richness and the the the, uh, the pervasiveness, and um, that perhaps taps into some specific brain systems uh, that have evolved that allow us to act on the world in the way that we do. So, um, you know, language, for instance, I'm not a not a language. I know nothing about language, but people tell me. It's, you know, it's fairly, it's a fairly recent invention, evolution, and from an evolutionary perspective, right. okay? Now, we clearly have systems in the brain that are associated with language, and perhaps you might say specialized for linguistic processes. And the interesting, interesting question is sort of, did these systems arise uh, because language was selected for, or is that something that was there to, to begin with, and then language kind of used? our linguistic capacities that evolved in our social world and our environment kind of got, got a hold of those systems and kind of uh, made them work uh, the way they do. So, I mean, that to me is the big difference. Uh, what makes us humans is that we manipulate our environment uh, in ways that is actually threatening the planet and we can transmit knowledge and therefore accumulate and build. Uh, and that is not the case or other animal species, uh, some non-human primates can do a little bit of that. Maybe some birds can, but there isn't nearly that profusion. Again, at some at some level, it has to that ha- has to uh, have a brain. There has to be some something in the brain that allows us to do that. Yeah. But I suspect that the answer ultimately is not just in the brain, but it's also in the way that we are able to use our sensory motor capacities to extend our cognition outward. I'm a great fan of Andy Clark's, you know, yeah. sort of extended cognition framework. Andy uh, was here uh, at IU for a few years and we got to, uh, we, we got to be good, good friends and talk a lot. And I, I really like his perspective on how cognition is not just happening, you know, in the brain, but it's also, uh, it is, it, we have been, we have found ways to externalize it to some extent and to, and to use our environment to extend our capacities for representation and, and transmission information tremendously. Interesting. Through language, through writing, through cultural artifacts, social practices. That's what makes us human, I think. That's what accounts for our capacity and our ability to do good things and do terrible things. And you think of that as a network, I imagine. It's a, yeah, I think there is another level of network here, right? When I, when I wrote Networks of the Brain, uh, here's a little tidbit for you. I chose the title deliberately uh, as networks of the brain because my my plan, my first my first outline that I sent to the publisher was actually going to have a complete second part that deals with this issue of how brains themselves make networks ah. and utilize networks that exist outside of them. And then I, you know, my energy, I think, I, I ran out at some point, and I had I had only one chapter at the end. Chapter 14, I think it is, that sort of touches upon that. But it is a very important uh, uh, set of ideas, I think, to uh, – this is, again, a very different thing from AI, right? This is AI systems really <laughs> – deep learning systems are not embodied. Um, they are fed you know, millions of elements of data, but they're not gathering the data themselves, and they have no social transmission or anything like that. They have no bodies. They just say, it's a flower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're classific- the classifiers, yeah. and and they, again, very very important, very powerful in many ways. We've, we've talked about this earlier, but but you know, that, so what makes us human then is, I think, um, 
nothing magical, nothing. I don't, I don't think it's a special cell type. It's a special brain region. It's a special type of connectivity or topological feature. It's the sudden explosion of possibilities that occurred when our brain topology became capable of using our bodies and feeding itself information in new ways. So there's a network there, a larger network, uh, that's, you know, above and beyond what we can measure in individual brains. But I think that's, um, that's the way I think about it. So it's humbling to some extent. I'm not claiming that by, for instance, you know, I, I, I do not believe that, um, connectomics, uh, if it's taken to the limit and we get all neurons and all connections, perhaps it's at one point, it will give us a magical answer or insight. It is a fundamental ingredient. It is necessary. It has given rise to change in our field, I think. It's turning 15 years, actually, this year. And it just became a word in the English language last year, the Oxford English Dictionary. Connectomics. Connectomics. Oh. Oh, Officially, a new word in the English. Oh, uh, congratulations! <laughs> thank you very much. I feel, I feel, uh, you know, I've, I've come, I've run my course. I can, <laughs> I can happily, you know, retire because, uh, you know, a word, uh, I contributed a word to the English language. But anyway, um, so I mean, I, I, I'm not expecting any magic to come from connectomics. I do believe it is fundamental, though. Yeah. Uh, just genomics, you know, is fundamental for understanding biological systems. But there's no magic answer there. Yeah. And it's, it's complicated is the answer, right? And uh, so uh, coming back to what makes us human, I don't, I think there is, there's no reductionist answer to that. There's no, there's no like, this is the connection that makes it, or this is the cell type, or that's the gene or whatever. No, hmm. I don't believe that at all. By the way, speaking of connectome, I had um, Kanaka Rajan on the show, and she used the word exposome. I mean, everything is an ohm now, and that's yeah. like what you've been exposed to. I'm like, what? Is that a word? And she said, yes, because all ohm words are words now. So thanks, Olaf. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is true. I mean, uh, there's many ohms out there, but uh, many of them don't make it in the sense of, you know, really taking off as concepts. Connectome did, uh, did make it, and uh, so that's one that I think will stay with us. Well, I've already taken you over time, and um, so hopefully maybe one day I'll have you back because I, I wanted to ask all about Rich Club uh, features and how they underlie our consciousness, although they're all over every brain, just like every other feature seems to be, and there's nothing special about humans. You haven't, con man you haven't mentioned consciousness until this late point in the interview. This is interesting. Uh, yeah, well, let's talk about consciousness some other time. This is another topic that... Uh, I have avoided really working on, to be honest, for over my career a little bit because uh, I this will this will shock you. I don't think ultimately it is all that interesting, but um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know maybe that's left for another conversation. I suppose so. You're killing my audience and me with this leaving off. Let me ask you one thing before we go. It has uh, you know learning uh, about the brain and network neuroscience. Um, is there something that you used to believe? That you now, looking back, think, oh, that was that was naive in my younger days, my inexperienced days. Well, I I think you know since I for as long as I can think, almost going back to certainly my undergraduate days and even before then, I was always fascinated by sort of bio, the, the complexity of biological systems. I didn't have the vocabulary back then, or the tools, or the insights that I have now, but. It was always something that struck me where, you know, biological systems were somewhat different from other physical systems that we might study. The, the complexity of it, the resilience, the mm -hmm. interesting sort of structure and dynamics aspect, the, his, the historical aspect, the evolutionary aspects, you know, where these systems come from. 
And really to, to this day, uh, I keep being surprised about how this complexity plays out in ways that are unanticipated in the brain. There are certainly things now that I, that I think are important that I didn't think were important, you know, 20 years ago. This whole interplay of structure and function uh, is sort of a fundamental hmm. uh, dialectic almost, uh, using, a, using a philosophical term here, of, of how, this, how our brains operate. The fact that there's a, a, a physical infrastructure, neurons, connections, synapses, molecules, etc. And then on top of that, these incredibly rich dynamics that unfold in ways that are, you know, uh, bewilderingly uh, are complex and and, the, and these things interact. The dynamics change the structure. The structure changes the dynamics. All of that's coupled to our bodies and our environments. Uh, I certainly didn't think of this of the system in this in this manner. You know, when I first got started, and in some ways, uh, the complexity that that we're facing is daunting. But I have some hope that as we face up to it and and directly engage with it and use it as a framework for studying for studying the brain we will ultimately discern laws function f- functional relationships uh, regularities principles that are going to allow us to you know write down um, uh, some fundamental working principles of how brains operate we're not there yet but I think we we have a better chance of getting there now than than, than 30 years ago well, there's only one way forward, and thank you, Olaf, for helping to move us forward uh, much faster, much more efficient than we otherwise would. And uh, so I, we're about to hang up, and I know you're in your office. When when we're done here, you're going to swivel your chair around, kick your feet up, stare at the books on your shelf, take a deep breath in, and relax. Maybe turn your printer back on, and then maybe go home. Put back on my face mask. I'll, your, uh, yeah. I'll leave my office and leave the building and go back home and uh, and work from there. Yeah, this is the this is the new time right now. Uh, so yeah, it's it was good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you as well. Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.